So this morning I want to talk about um, how we relate to God. But before that, I want to talk about how we relate together as people. You know, in human relationships, we go through all sorts of stages. It's like a roller coaster up and down. And, you know, some of you are like, I'm terrified of roller coasters. And some of you are like, I'm more terrified of human relationships. So I don't know which camp you fall into. Uh, it, it can kind of go either way. But we go up and down and we have periods of distance and periods of closeness. And normally when we talk about distance, it's obviously not a good thing. You know, you're talking about your brother, your sister, your cousin, your friend. Uh, you know, I haven't reached out to them in a while. Uh, hey, you still talk to them? Well, things have kind of grown apart. We're a little more distant than we would like to be. So normally distance isn't something that you want. But I, I think there are some ways in which distance is actually, in little ways, what you want. For example, I come home from work, and if it's been a particularly crazy day, and my children are acting like rabid monkeys climbing all over my wife, the one thing she wants is distance. 10, 15, 20 minutes, if longer, if, I, if I'll allow it, uh, if I'll give her that time graciously. She just wants that distance. She's like, I love them, but I, I need a little bit of distance. And I'll be honest with you, with my kids, there's also times where I want a little distance. Daisy is two and starting potty training, so obviously we're talking about you know, bathroom stuff all the time. That's what you do when you potty train a kid. Tate, however, is four, and I'd like to think we did a, at least a passable job at potty training, and it's going okay. He's been well potty trained, no big issues there, but I don't need as much communication. I don't need the play-by-plays all the time. I feel like there's a lot of updates on what's going on, and I just, you know, I could use a little distance in the communication on that one. You know, if... If I have to be suspect whether you washed your hands when you run out to tell me what happened in the bathroom, I say, Tate, I love you, but please go wash your hands. I don't need this much. So sometimes a little bit of distance in one way might be good. You know, you go from being a teen, or I'm sorry, a kid to being a teen, and as a kid, you're completely dependent. So then the pendulum really swings emotionally as you grow up and you're like, I just want some more uh, independence in my life. And not just in bad ways, not just like, you know, you want to sneak out and get in trouble. Some ways it might just be like, you know, I, you know, I'm with my parents all the time. I just need, I don't need them to know everything. I just want to have my own life a little bit. So we start kind of pushing into that. And I remember when I got a vehicle and, you know, my mom, innocent question one day, I'm going to leave the house to get in my car and go see friends or whatever. She said, oh, hey, Johnny, where are you going? Outside. And she's like, Outside. Like, no, no, listen, that worked when your friend lived half a block away or you'd play football at the school that's a block away. Now that you have a car, you can't just tell me outside. But for me, it was like, no, I, I can't be bothered with those questions. Those are childish questions. No, I'm going outside and I'll go do what I want. Uh, you know, so not saying it's a good thing, but we really want that independence. And then, you know, I think of marriage and how we kind of grow from distance to closeness. And my wife and I really, I don't know if it's on the honeymoon or really early on in marriage, we both had this kind of like verbal realization. We're out on a date and we're like, we're so happy we don't have to go through dating again. Listen, dating wasn't that bad. It was at least good enough that she said yes. So uh, there was a, dating was at least passable. Uh, but for her and I, it was like, you know, we're just glad that we don't have to go through that kind of stage. You know, it's a little bit of awkwardness and, and you know, the longer you've been married, you grow closer together and you kind of, and you're like, I don't want to have to go through that stage of life again. Uh, but I asked my wife, I was uh, speaking recently for youth group about love, did a series on that. 
And the last one was on marriage. So I texted my wife and I said, hey, listen, you know, we've said before that we're so happy we, we don't have to get, uh, you know, go through the dating stage again. So if you could just tell me three reasons for a youth group, three reasons you're happy you don't have to date. So she gave them to me, whether I wanted them or not. First one, quote from my wife, I'm not afraid to tell you the cold, hard, honest truth, whether you like it or not. That's one where you text back and you say, is there cold, hard, honest truth when I get home or is this just in general? I just need to know. Second one, quote, there's no awkward tension. Whatever's happening, we know what's happening. I mean, like, you know, we know that we're married. You know, it's not like the pressure hanging over us, like, are we gonna be married or whatever. The last one, quote my wife, I don't care if I look ugly. Which with that one, I was like, all right, how do I text? I gotta, you know, slowly pray about this one. Uh, But no, I feel like there's a bit of a double standard here if I'm honest with you, this is transparency time. Because I feel like if I look ugly someday, then I'm getting the cold, hard, honest truth from my wife. I feel like if it's time to go out on a date, you know, I feel like she knows how to say something in a certain way. Like we're getting ready and you know, I have to kind of do my hair or whatever. And she'll be like, hey, you, uh, you didn't do your hair yet, did you? I'm like, oh yeah, I did. What? Oh. Oh, okay. Or like I'm putting, you know, I have my outfit ready. We're going on a date. Hey, you ready to go get in the car? You know, babies, whoever's watching the kids, they're here. We're ready to go. Oh, uh, you didn't get dressed for the date, did you? Or like, oh, no, no, you didn't dress yet. I'm like, yeah, this is it. Here's the subtext translation. Why would you wear that outfit? I don't like you thinking about wearing that. Please burn it. Uh, so th- 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 that's what she's telling me. So we kind of go from, you know, the maybe a little bit of like, you know, uh, you go on the first date and, and you're like real worried about any food being on your face to like things like, oh, why are you wearing that? Uh, so we go from this sort of distance to closeness. And really, even if you're never married, just like with friendships, you know, you start with it, you bond over a hobby and you kind of get closer over time and and you get to know each other better. So that's just kind of how our relationships work. But this isn't how it was when God made people. When God created humanity, it was not a thing where we progressed from distance to closeness. It was about an immediate closeness from the very beginning of time, from the very creation of people, I should say, from the creation of Adam, there, it was an immediate closeness, no distance. We see that in Genesis chapter two, verse seven. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. See, Genesis chapter one is kind of like the big bird's eye view of creation. Or Genesis two is like, it's like a sports uh, replay. Things are slowed down. You get a different angle. You're zooming in. It's like, here's how creation looks like. But God says, wait a minute. In Genesis two, we're going to look closer. Because there's something special about what I'm creating here. So special that, in fact, that that breath, the the Hebrew word for breath, I don't remember it or know it, but that word is only used for the people, not for any other creation. So no animal gets this word. Only people are made in God's image and special enough that they get this breath of life. And I feel like it's such an intimate picture here that God breathed into the nostrils to pour his breath out into humanity. 
It's this picture of closeness, this picture of not just a creator who makes creation and forgets about it, but one who loves. Continuing in Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. I kind of picture it here. It's like, you know, he brings Adam in and Adam's made mature. He's not a kid, but it feels like a father, a happy, proud father bringing his kid in. Kid's down here. He's got his hand in his back. Look what I've made for you. It's like you build the playground that takes, you know, way longer than you think it will. And you're just happy that your kid gets to play on it. That's what God's doing here. He's bringing Adam along. Look at this garden I have for you. Look at these animals I've created for you. Look, you're going to get to work this. You're going to get to keep this. You're going to put your thumbprint on this. And even better yet, I'm going to pour out my breath into a woman who can be your wife, who can live with you. God wanted these people to be close to him immediately. But you probably know the story at least well enough to know it doesn't last that way. To know that we immediately move from closeness to distance. Where Genesis chapter three is they eat from the fruit and God pronounces the curses upon them. Nothing will ever be the same from this moment for Adam and Eve in their lifetime. They went from being so close to God to knowing him, to having access to him, to him pronouncing what the curse is gonna look like. Sin is gonna enter the world. Death and decay. Life for Adam's gonna be different. It's gonna be harder. Life for Eve is gonna be different. It's gonna be harder forever. At least for their mortal lives. And imagine with me what that moment would be like to be Adam and Eve standing there before God as he's pronouncing what world, the world is gonna look like. Wait, I have to leave? What? Why? I, I love this garden. No, it's great. It was, it, it's fantastic. Why would I want to leave? I got to name all the animals here. Why do I have to leave? What is the fear like? What is the anxiety like? What is the, the, the rabbit trails in the mind of like, I, I don't want to leave. What's that going to mean? What do you mean die? What is death? I don't know. I don't want it. It doesn't sound good. We can only imagine what's running through their mind. And even though God gives them a promise in Genesis 3.15 of an offspring, a child who will grow to strike the head of the serpent, meaning Jesus. I don't know if they understood that. What fear did they have as they were forced out of the garden? Only knowing what closeness and access to God was and now walking out into a desert of distance. And unfortunately, maybe you don't have to imagine Maybe either now or times in your past, you have felt distance from God. You have felt like you're walking in a desert and, and you've either never been in a, a good garden with God or you're not in it anymore, so you think. So maybe you don't have to imagine what Adam and Eve feel. Maybe you ask questions like this. How can I go on from where I am now? I know where I am now, but, but how, how can I go on? How can God fix what's happened? How can God move me forward? Maybe you hear earlier how God's on the move, and he is. But you're like, I don't know the last time I felt God on the move for me. 
Maybe you ask questions like, how will God fix what I've broken? How can God love me? How can God look past what I've done? Or maybe you know that God has forgiven you of everything, but you don't know how to forgive yourself. I hope that's not what you feel this morning. Maybe it's been a long time since you've had questions like that, but whether you're here with us or you're watching online, I'm aware that we go through moments like that where we wonder what God can do with this distance. So throughout the Old Testament, they're struggling with this distance. And look, God is not limited by this curse. God can show up wherever. God is omnipresent. God speaks to people. He speaks to prophets. He has a mediator named Moses. He speaks to a little boy named Samuel while he's sleeping. And he's calling people to himself. He is moving history forward to the point of redemption. But the people struggle more and more. You, can, you work your way through the Old Testament. You get to a book like the book of Judges where it's terrible, awful, violent thing after terrible, awful, violent thing. People doing what they want to do. People are falling apart without access that they used to have with God. Graciously, God provides ways. First, we get the tabernacle, which becomes the temple. I think we have a picture of the temple, if we could throw that up. This is just a a little, there's not great pictures online. They're usually from study Bibles. You blow them up, they don't look that great. But this is what the inside of the temple looked like. On the far left, where you see the the giant angelic beings, that is the place called the most holy place, sometimes called the holy of holies. So God creates the temple, first is the tabernacle, then the temple. This is the place where God will show up in a manifest way. His presence will dwell fully in that spot. On the, all the way to the left where the Ark of the Covenant is or where the priest is facing. But only once a year does anyone actually get to go past the veil. If we could put the other picture up. with This is the giant curtain that is, you didn't see it in the last picture, but this is what's normally in front of that room, the most holy place. This massive curtain we call the veil. To show them there is now a barrier between the presence of God and you. Sin has caused a, basically a wall to be between God and people. And once a year, the high priest gets to, have, um, gets to step into this place, but it's only during the Day of Atonement, which is for another message, but it's only by the cost of blood, by a sacrifice, that he gets to step in there and leave a sacrifice for the people. But even if you weren't a priest back then, if you were just an, an Israelite who wanted to worship, you still go once a year and you bring your sacrifice, and it's a reminder to you that there is now a cost to access God, and that cost is blood. There is now distance that sin has caused. And the temple itself, I think, is to remind us of what once what, excuse me, what we once had in the garden. The temple is literally decorated with pictures of uh, images of palm trees, pomegranates, flowers. In fact, when God commands them to make the priestly garments, they, they weave into them little pomegranates. 
I think that's to show us, look, you were supposed to have a fruitful life. You were supposed to have this great kind of garden life with God. Everyone was created to be with God. You were created for a great intimate life with God. That breathing life into the nostrils where you see the creator who loves his creation wasn't just for Adam and Eve. It wasn't just for someone else. It was for you. It's what you were created for. It's what was meant for people. This veil, thankfully, this curtain that separated Israel from God is torn when Jesus dies. And you know, I spoke on Good Friday and Pastor Brian spoke on Easter and we talked a lot about what Jesus was going through physically and, and spiritually and, and hearing about the, the, the kind of toll and the humiliation that he's subject to. But if we focus only on the forgiveness of the sins, we miss what that forgiveness was for. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 50. Just these two verses that I think the whole sacrificial system is building up to. Remember, the Old Testament, they're struggling. They're, they're, they're struggling to, to get, uh, I, I use struggling lightly. If, if you're familiar, you know a lot of awful, sinful things have happened and God keeps moving history along graciously. Verse 50, but Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. This tearing of the veil. It might not mean as much to us because we didn't grow up in the world with it. But if you're an Israelite, you have a sacrificial system that there's rich, you can be ritually clean, ritually unclean. So you do certain things like... You, you touch a dead body, you do certain things, you can become ritually unclean. Meaning to present your sacrifice, you have to go through a process. And this, this is what God provided at the time. It was a gracious way for people to come to God and for sin to be dealt with. But it was never meant to be forever. So Jesus didn't just die so that the negative sin, the bad thing can be taken from you. The veil was torn so that access could be given back to you, so that God the Father's presence could be open to you. How do we know this? From the book of Hebrews. In chapter 10. Look, Hebrews is a fantastic book where Jesus time and time again is shown to be better than anything. In Hebrews 1, we see that better than... Um, better than a prophet, better than an angel could ever deliver, the way we know who God really is, the way we really tr truly see the character of God the Father is in Jesus. And Jesus is held up throughout this book. He, he, he's the best revel uh, revelation of God ever. He's the best sacrifice. He's the best priest. Chapter 10 talks about how he's the perfect sacrifice. We're gonna pick it up in verse 11. But before this, it was talking about how Worshippers had to come, people had to come year after year, and they were reminded that there was sin year after year. Verse 11, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, I mean Jesus, 
after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He's now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after, he says, and then, and then we get a quote from the book of Jeremiah. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days. The Lord says, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds, and I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. We'll come right back to Hebrews, but he's quoting Jeremiah. And look, Jeremiah is a prophet in the Old Testament. He's prophesying about the exile. That they're gonna, uh, what's left of Israel is going to be taken over by Babylon. We're going to be kicked out of here. A lot of bad things are going to happen. We're going to be imprisoned for years, um, or at least exiled. But Jeremiah is giving hope, the message God gives him. Look, there's coming a day where outward signs, where outward acts of faith and obedience aren't important in the way they were during this system of sacrifices. He says there's coming a day where God's not just gonna circumcise the body, but circumcise the heart. There's coming a day where God's gonna change you. Ezekiel puts it, there's a day coming where I will give a new heart to people. I will take out the heart of stone and I will give a heart of flesh. Let's pick it back up, verse 18. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain. Curtain is talking about the veil and the temple. That is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. What Hebrews is telling us is that Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice. In the old way of doing things, you had to come year after year and lay down the sacrifice and you're reminded, I'm, I, I have sin. The high priest is reminded as he's sprinkling the veil with blood, there is sin. And while it still exists, we are told here that once and for all it's paid for. And again, this isn't just about you get to be forgiven, you get to have the bad things taken out of your life. This is a good thing. This is God saying, I want to give you my presence. I want to give you access to me. It's, it's how it began. I want that immediate closeness. I'll pay the price for it so that you can be close to me like you were meant to be. But I'll be honest probably already know this to some degree. Maybe you know a good bit about the veil. Maybe you've heard these sort of messages before. Usually on Easter and Good Friday, Holy Week, we talk about the veil being torn and we talk about how we can now be with God. So for some of you, it's nothing new. But then the question is, why? Why? 
Why do we often feel, if we're in a, in a small group or in a prayer meeting, or we're, we're having a more in-depth conversation, why do we often say things or think things that usually mean like, well, I wish I was closer. I wish my prayer was deeper. I wish I knew God more. I'm not talking about coming to know him for the first time. I'm talking about being with Jesus, loving Jesus, knowing the Holy Spirit has changed you, but still saying, but I know there's more. We often say things like that. We think things like that. We feel things like that. So what's the disconnect? Why are we concerned with distance if we've already put our faith in Jesus? I think we are longing for more of his presence. A.W. Tozer is an uh, Alliance pastor and author, and he passed away in the 60s, but in his book, The Pursuit of God, he has a whole chapter on the veil. He talks about this of God's presence. He says, the world is perishing for the lack of knowledge of God, and the church is famishing for want of his presence. The instant cure of most of our religious ills would be to enter his presence in spiritual experience to become suddenly aware that we are in God and that God is in us. This would lift us out of our pitiful narrowness and cause our hearts to be enlarged. This would burn away the impurities from our lives as the bugs and fungi were burned away by the fire that dwelt in the bush. Sometimes you read Tozer and, uh, I mean, as an Alliance pastor, you have to in the process. So that's why I say that. Uh, Terry, I, I'm reading them, I promise. Uh, but, uh, you know, we read Tozer, and, and it feels kind of like, oh, man, this is tough. Sometimes it's like, you know, a, a real, you know, like, oh, man, I, I, I need more of God. And it really opens your eyes that way. But it's not just negative here. He says, he says our pitiful narrowness, but he's pointing us to how could your heart be enlarged? How could you have the joyful, abundant life that Jesus offers and promises to you? More and more, he says, you go to the presence of God. So again, I ask, what keeps us? Because I think we know this. Well, I think like Adam and Eve, who when sin enters the world, they picked up a bunch of leaves to hide shame. I think we hold up scraps of a veil. For a bunch of reasons, Sometimes we want some distance, even if it's the worst thing for us. I wrote down some things that lead us to hold up the veil, to pick up scraps of fabric and hold it between us and God. Some of these have been true for me at times. It's not an exhaustive list, but I think it's some of the reasons. We hold up scraps because we're afraid we're not worthy of love and delight. Like, you know God loves you. Hopefully, you don't have to come to our church too long to hear. Hopefully, every single week you catch that God loves you. But sometimes we're thinking, okay, I know that God loves me, but is that like he has to love me? Does he actually delight in me? What, what, is this like a love that really loves me, delights in me? We hold up scraps when we're afraid we'll never really be bold. Hebrews 4.16 talks about how we can now approach the throne with boldness. It's all because of Jesus. 
Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Maybe you're afraid that you'll never be bold. You're like, I I know those other Christians that are bold. I know they are bold. I know those people have confidence. I know they're the ones that have the deep, fulfilling prayer life. But it's not that they did anything. They didn't earn it more than you. They're not worthy more than you. It's just that they step forward with God, approaching the throne. Sometimes we hold up scraps because we're afraid of what God might call us to. We can be like Jonah, wanting to run away from what God has next for us. Not wanting to listen because we're afraid of what's next, what he wants us to give up in life, what sins he wants us to let go of, what, what new things he wants us to chase after, good things, kingdom things. We hold up scraps when we stop looking at the perfection of Jesus and we start looking at our performance. We become like the Apostle Paul. We're sad because we don't do what we want to do, but we do what we hate. Sometimes we beat ourselves up because we're like, I keep messing this up. How can I pray to God? How's he going to delight in me? How am I going to have this close relationship? We hold up scraps when we're saddened or ashamed, even though we really want to do more for the kingdom. We love Jesus. We want to see more people give their lives to Jesus. We want to see lives changed forever. But maybe you feel like you're not healthy enough to do that. Mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Maybe you feel like you haven't been stable for a long time. You're not okay enough. You're like, I, I, I know I love Jesus. I, I want to do something, but I'm just not in the right place. And, and sometimes we get ashamed, and, and that just takes longer and longer. And we start looking at us instead of Jesus. And you become afraid you've let God down. Maybe people have let you down. You're still in church because you're walking with Jesus and you love him. But maybe churches, maybe your church has let you down. Maybe the people around you have let you down. Maybe you felt ignored or hurt before. And maybe now without realizing it, you've let it come between you and God. Maybe you've even begun to hold it against God without even realizing it. We need God's presence more than anything. The people that walk into this church, if a visitor comes in next week, the thing they need most from us is encouragement and someone to to say, we're going to go into God's presence. Look, we're coming out of... uh, you know, increasingly, in, in, in some ways, COVID season, COVID time, it's not even season, year. And if you're in pastor circles, there, there's all these articles and, and, and good things about, you know, how are we going to gauge things? And it's kind of refocusing and it's forced us to ask a lot of good questions. Are our churches asking the most important questions? questions? Are our churches doing the most important things? And we can ask ourselves questions, and these are good questions about, like, how many people are at this thing? Is our church growing? How's our, how are our programs? How are our kids' ministry? How's our youth ministry? How are these things doing? But the thing I'm left with after this season 
is thinking I don't want to succeed at the wrong things. What we need, what people outside this building need is the presence of God. There are people in your families, there are friends, there are people out in this community that think there is a veil that will never be torn. That think there's a barrier between them and God that can never be broken down. They look at themselves, they see their sin, they know their past, they know their family, they know what, what they've done, that they know what's happened to them, and all they can ever think is that there's no God that could love this. Maybe they think, yeah, God can love them, God can love the person that went to that church that day, but not me. And maybe they'll come occasionally to church and that's how they occasionally offer a sacrifice because they think that's still how it works with God, that they have to barter with him. Not fully understanding that the veil has been torn so that God could give access back to us. And one of my greatest fears is that we take that too lightly. That we don't appreciate enough That you already, if you have put your faith in Jesus, have full access to a God who wants to know you closely. It's easy for me to get up here on on Good Friday like I did, and I mean, not easy because it was tough, but to read through some of the things that physically and medically were happening for Jesus and for us to be upset and saddened and, and, and have a fresh gratitude for what God did and say like, you know, that, that's awful and you did that for me and thank you for forgiving me. But it's not just about the sin that was forgiven. It was about what the sin was forgiven for so that you could be with God. Look, our church, our homes, our families can't just be people about Jesus. It can't just be people that come together in his name. We are about Jesus. We come together only in the name of Jesus, but we have to be with him. If I have the worship team come up, we're going to go ahead and take another moment lingering with God. I'll pray at the end of that and then we'll sing this last song. But in this time, I want you to think, are there scraps of a veil? Are there leaves that you gather up? Sometimes in different seasons of life, it's different things. Sometimes for different people, we have different struggles and different tendencies and and maybe you don't beat yourself up, but maybe you get mad at other people and that's hurting what God needs to do in your life and in your heart. For each and every one of us, there's probably a different version of the veil. There's different scraps. There's different leaves. Take a moment to be honest with yourself and God and then ask him to tear those up, to burn the leaves, burn the scraps, and then to throw his arms around you. So let's think about that for a minute, and I'll pray and we'll sing.